Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Our text today will be from verse 30 uh, through 32, but I think I'm going to back up and start um, in verse 29, which is where we were two weeks ago. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. A large part of what the Apostle Paul is laying out in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 is the contrast between believers and unbelievers. How has the gospel changed our lives? How do we how does it look? How does it play out in our everyday lives? We primarily know what someone believes, not so much by what they say, but rather by what they do or how they live. There are many who profess to be Christians who, and who would be highly offended were someone to even begin to question that profession, but whose attitudes or behaviors contradict their profession. And I don't mean just occasionally, but I mean substantially. Now, there's really no need for the normal disclaimer that no one is perfect, because we all know that, and that's not what's being called for here, and that's certainly not what I'm calling for. In fact, what's being called for is a certain type of attitude and behavior in response to the sins of others. We live with each other, fellow sinners, and inevitably there will be there will be sins, sins committed against us. And this text is primarily concerned with how we respond when we are sinned against. So this is not a catalog of what others should be doing toward you, but rather it's an explicit set of standards for your attitude and behavior toward all the other sinners in your life. This is what will set you apart from unbelievers, and will receive God's blessing. And so our text today opens with a very interesting revelation. The Bible's telling us things about God. This is the way we know God, is through His Word, through what He's been pleased to reveal about Himself. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that there is that certain behavior on our part grieves the Holy Spirit. When we don't love one another the way God, the way we should, it makes God sad. This word actually could be translated offended. God is offended. The Holy Spirit is offended when we act contrary to what he's saying here. Perhaps the best way to mention this is to illustrate the way Parents feel in a a similar way, I think, when our children don't show love for one another. When they're hateful to one another. That grieves us. 
We, we hate to see that. And that's what the text is saying here about the Holy Spirit regarding us. The desire to not grieve the Holy Spirit should be a powerful motivation for each of us in these things. Christian ethics is driven by far more than what's in it for me. It's not just about making my life better or happier. We were created for the glory of God, and and until we are actually glorifying God, we will never be happy. People get this backwards. They pursue happiness over here, and actually what they need to be pursuing is God's glory, faithfulness to Him, obedience to Him, and then the happiness comes as a byproduct of that. The opposite of glorifying Him is grieving Him. Sanctification is first and foremost about Him. He has set us apart. He has made us holy unto the Lord. And the byproduct, again, of not grieving Him is that we do find real joy and happiness. And so if you're a true believer, then that means you have the Holy Spirit in you. And Paul, as Paul writes to the Romans, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And again, Romans 8.14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That's the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Romans 6, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you The result of that is, you are not your own. This is not about you. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Settle that. And things will begin to change. Rather dramatically, I might add. So now, everything you're being called to do, are, uh, to do, you are enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do, and you must stop resisting Him. In Christ, you can do everything that He's calling you to do. So once again, I ask you to find yourself in this text today and leave here determined to follow Jesus And to do whatever He's called you to do. However hard it is, whether you think it'll work or it won't work, that is really irrelevant. He didn't say, do this if you think it'll work in your situation. He just said, do this. And and you'll be blessed. And so... um, Anything that is not holy grieves Him. We can grieve Him with our thoughts. We can grieve Him with our attitudes, with our words, and with our behavior. He is omniscient, and so He is aware of, more than aware, He's fully cognizant of all of that, all the time. So the text says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So remember what He's doing in you and for you all the time. And so let's uh, let this motivate you in your progress, in your sanctification, in that process of becoming more and more like Christ. Now in this whole section of Ephesians, Paul 
a number of times talks about stop doing this and start doing this other thing. Put this in its place. What Jay Adams calls the take-off, put-on dynamic. Take off your dirty clothes and put on clean clothes. Take off this bad habit and put on this good habit. Many of us, most of us, have developed over the years both a combination of bad and good habits. The good habits bring blessing. The godly habits always bring blessing. And the bad habits always bring misery. Unhappiness. So this brings us to the last set, this text does, of negative and positive instructions, the take-offs and the put-ons that are found uh, prior to this in Ephesians 4. And so there are some things that should never be a part of your life again. There are other things that must be constantly present in your life. And so, for example, we are going to take off bitterness, Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. And what we're going to put on in its place is kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. So let's take those one at a time very briefly, just to be sure we don't fly past them and miss the point. Bitterness is always about relationships. It's always directed toward someone. It is a state of the spirit, and and its result is a sourness of perspective which never sees the good but can always find whatever is wrong and defective. A few people may may wear rose-colored glasses, but the bitter person wears yellow-tinted glasses so that everyone they look at is jaundiced and tainted. The Bible says to rejoice in and for all things and to rejoice always, and the bitter person does the opposite. And make no mistake, no matter what has been done to the bitter person, the bitterness is a sin that belongs only to the bitter person. Bitterness is your sin, not anybody else's. Yeah, but they, okay, let's give it, let's assume they did all those horrible things to you. Are you bitter? You may not be bitter. You have to take off bitterness. There are other remedies for what other people have done to you. There are other instructions in the Bible on how to handle that, like go to them to win your brother, Matthew 18. There, You can pray for them. You can... Be wronged by them. You can turn the other cheek. You can bless them. There's all kinds of instruction in the Bible about how you can interact with the person who sinned against you. The one thing you cannot do is be bitter toward them. Bitterness belongs to the bitter person. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all people. We're going to see that's the the opposite here of the bitter person, because the bitter person actually nurses offenses, feeds them, and fertilizes them. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Boy, that's an awesome warning. Looking carefully 
Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. God's ill-deserved favor toward you. You're going to fall short of that. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I will readily grant that the bitter person might have a very legitimate grievance against someone else. But they take that offense and they ruminate on it and they rehearse it and they nurse it and they dwell on it. And if they start to forget it, they will deliberately bring it up to themselves again and to others until their bitterness begins to bubble back up. They don't want to let go of it. This is what enables them to be a victim. We live in a culture of this. And this only happens with real, this not only happens with real offenses, but also with imagined ones and exaggerated offenses. The more you rehearse it, the the worse it gets. I remember the look in her eye. I remember the tone of his voice. I knew exactly, I remember the day and the hour and where we were standing and how far apart we were. I remember what the weather was. I remember what was on the TV. I remember every detail because I have gone over this a billion times because I will not let go. Bitterness does not want to believe anything good of anybody or anything. But it stands at the ready to be suspicious and cynical, and ready to believe evil, and to give the worst possible interpretation or spin. It takes the glory and the beauty out of everything. It spoils, or as the book of Hebrews says, it defiles. A bitter person can't possibly be a happy person. And so the chief person that is spoiled and defiled is the bitter person themselves. That's what's on the inside. Dr. Lloyd-Jones described bitter people this way. There are, of course, many people who feel that they have had good cause for being bitter. They've been dealt certain hard blows by life, but that is no justification for bitterness or for sourness or for becoming cynical. Even if life is described to them at its best, their very expression lets you know that they are not really disposed to allow themselves to enjoy anything. The saddest people I know in the world are these bitter people. They make themselves miserable, and for the time being, they make everybody else miserable. And it is a terrible thing to be nursing a grievance, real or imaginary. Put it away from you, says Paul. Put it away from you that that is the old man, that is the pagan That is the unregenerate world. It should never appear in the Christian. But you don't know how hard I have it. Well, that could be true, but perhaps you've forgotten how good you have it. From bitterness comes these other things, wrath and clamor and evil speaking and malice. Wrath is more agitated, it's a more agitated and heightened Sinful expression of anger, which can be internal and seething. I'm hot. I'm boiling. I'm furious. Clamor is literally 
loud quarreling or yelling. We stop speaking to one another, and instead of edifying speech, we engage in hurtful and destructive speech, sticking a jab in here or there. The culmination of all this is uh, of this bitter eruption is what he calls evil speaking. This is the deliberate saying of things that are hurtful and harmful to others. Again, it is the insertion of a knife or perhaps the tongue. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. Insult for insult, curse for curse. And underneath all this bitterness and corrupt, bitter and corrupt speaking is a heart filled with malice. Malice is wishing ill upon someone else. It's a form of hatred which seeks to inflict pain on someone else. Payback, if you will. It's the opposite of love, which always seeks the good of others, even at your own expense. If you could really see yourself in that moment of unleashing, you would, or perhaps should, be embarrassed or ashamed. If someone were to walk in on that. You have done them no good, and you've done yourself no good, and you have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. You can switch on the sweetness, of course, to cover for everyone else to see. Your sinful pride tries to hide the shame of your bitterness, but God can see through all of that. Hebrews 4, 12-13, God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so I want you to remember that every time you find yourself engaged in any kind of behavior, most often in our homes, there is nothing of this kind of behavior, there's nothing Christian about it. There is no, none, no justification for it. This is, this is not righteous indignation. Regardless of what another person might have said or done to you in that moment, you're acting like an unbeliever. You have, you're not following Jesus. You have certainly forgotten that God is present, and that is the opposite of a believer. And so Paul says this kind of behavior is to be put away from us forever because it's horrible. In fact, the term evil speaking is the word for blasphemous. We not only blaspheme when we say wrong things about God, we also blaspheme when we say evil things about one another since that we are all made in the image of God. All of this is incomp- incompatible with a new man in Christ. We might find it difficult to admit that we have in our hearts bitterness, malice, anger, or wrath. But I'm asking you to confess it right now. Every one of us have struggled with this at some point. Maybe a little, maybe a lot, maybe all the time. Maybe over years, maybe just this week. 
Own it. Own all of it. Repent of it. Put it away forever. Throw it out and lock the door. All of that, all of that is a denial of who you are in Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, that's what we like to call the negative. That's the part we want to take off. That's the nasty part. What's the positive? What's the beautiful? What's the lovely that we want to put on? Well, the next verse says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Remember, the best way, indeed the only way to get rid of these old vices is to replace them with new virtues. Something's going to fill that space. Thomas Chalmers said that we need to apply the expulsive power of a new affection. The Apostle Peter writes about this in his second epistle, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. I want to ask you, are you giving all diligence to correcting these things? Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we must cultivate this new perspective, this new point of view, this new attitude, and we have to become kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. And this isn't going to necessarily all happen in a flash, in a moment. You'll have to think about it and pray about it and practice it. What kind of person do you want to be? Bitter, angry, grumpy, and foul. That's A. Choice A. It's a multiple choice. And B. Cheerful, gracious, kind. To be kind is the opposite of being bitter, and it literally means to be useful or helpful to others. Bitter and sour people are never really helpful. They withdraw, they isolate themselves, or perhaps others just don't want to be around them. Kindness gives and is benevolent toward others. The bitter person always finds fault. The kind person is always on the lookout for something to praise. So when you meet someone new, what are you looking for? Some fault? 
or something to praise. And next we consider what it is to be tender-hearted. This means that we were understanding. We are compassionate and loving. Even when, especially when the other person has sinned or let us down or even hurt us. And so this is the opposite of being calloused. There's no shortage of people who have concluded that life is hard and that means it's every man for himself. Kill or be killed. It's me and mine. But the tender-hearted person is like Christ who, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Can a sinner not feel compassion for a fellow sinner? Have you forgotten who and what you are and from where you came And then to replace malice, we have to put on forgiveness. All the people in your life are sinners, like you. And like you, they all need forgiveness. People have and will continue to do you wrong. Forgive them. He doesn't say that we should pretend that uh, they have done nothing. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness fully acknowledges the wrong they have done and then graciously pays the price. Cancels the debt. You owe me nothing. It's covered. I love you. It's taken care of. Part of true forgiveness is forgetting. What forgiveness is, is the promise to forget. God said, I'll remember your sins no more. Cast them as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't say, I'll forgive you, but I really don't want to talk to you right now. Really don't want to visit with you. Really don't want to be close. Stand over there. Yeah, you're forgiven, but. Part of true forgiveness is forgetting. So if you're holding on to old offenses, then you haven't forgiven. You really don't want to, uh, uh, you really do not want to keep score, I promise you. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? Everybody can quote that. Short, gets you out of a bind when you feel like somebody's judging you. You can tell them, The Bible says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Of course, you just judge them uh, for judging you. <clears throat> But the rest of the verse, rest of the passage, Jesus said, here's the point of what, of the judging. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Let's, let's paraphrase that. Whatever standard you're using on that person right now, that's the standard God will use on you. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And so why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not even consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so now if you've already worked on kindness and have been cultivating a tender heart, then I can assure you forgiveness will come much easier. Forgiving one another, how? How? 
even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the standard. Not a cheap version of forgiveness. Not an apology. Sorry. Okay. No. Is that how Christ forgave you? Anything less than doing it the way Christ did it is not forgiveness. This is the standard by which forgiveness is measured. We're to forgive one another the same way God forgave us. There is no partial or on-again, off-again forgiveness with God. Psalm 103, 8-14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As as far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame And he remembers that we are dust. Don't you want to be like God? Paul has already told us earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know that your sins are forgiven. There's a way for you to know the answer to that question. Are you forgiving others? Are you eager and ready to forgive others who have sinned against you? As you hear this sermon today, are you hardened or softened? The Bible pushes us. It's hard. We want to do a little, and it requires much more. Jesus makes this argument in his parable found in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. That seemed like a lot. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one who was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
much less. And he laid hands on him and shook him by the throat, saying, Pay, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay, pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what, he, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he'd called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And boy, verse 35 is powerful. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So God does not forgive us because we first forgave. The person who realizes that forgiveness is, is it, what for, the person who realizes what true forgiveness is freely forgives others. If you have felt kindness, mercy, and compassion, if you have had your debts canceled, then how could you refuse that to someone else? Even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for instructing us in how to live our new life in Christ and for giving us genuine hope in redeeming not only our relationships to you, but also to one another. We have too often given up when we have yet to trust and obey you. In our bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, and evil speaking, we forget what you have done for us and fail to give to others what you have given to us. Lord, forgive our lack of faith and encourage us today to put off these things and to put on kindness and tenderheartedness and to forgive one another even as you in Christ forgave us. Lord, there are husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, parents and children and siblings who need to take your words to heart today. May they find the true joy that comes only in faith and obedience. As the Apostle John wrote, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who, who begot also, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. In Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, it says, And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. 
But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Again, Dr. Jones commenting on Ephesians 4.32 says, We are forgiven in spite of ourselves, not because of any merit or any goodness in us. God does it entirely of his own free grace. It is all of God. It is all of his grace. It is a pure gift. We were enemies without strength, ungodly and vile and sinners. But God forgave us freely, and you and I must do that to others who are vile and ungodly and enemies and hateful. That is how God has forgiven you. He bore the suffering himself in his own son, and if he has done that for us, can we possibly refuse forgiveness to another? Is that conceivable? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen.